Join me for a reading from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. Let's join together and pray. Oh God, that song is our prayer that you would speak, oh Lord, that you would speak to each heart here, that we would hear your voice and recognize your voice, and that we would do something with it. You don't speak to us, Lord, that we might just... Um, uh, be passive with it, but you speak so that we might be transformed, and we ask that you would do that as you have the whole service. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight we are going to begin a study of the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament. It's a book that uh, I, over my ministry, have preached little parts of, but I've never really preached uh, through the whole book. I mean, we're not going to go through every passage, but it's one of these, uh, these books that when you sit down with it, you just kind of go, wow, there's a lot here. I'm praying that we won't get lost in the wow. Because the book has a bit of mystery to it. Unlike other books in the New Testament, we don't know who the author is really. Uh, we don't know the audience to whom he was writing, where they were located. We don't know where he was located. And even the form of the letter itself is a little unusual. There's not any greetings at the beginning or greetings at the end. But as you begin to sort of set down and look at this letter that was written, more shape and details emerge. They rise up. As the name suggests, it's likely written to a, a community of Jewish followers of Jesus Christ. That's where it gets its name, the book of Hebrews. It was likely a community of people that met 
regularly or daily together to worship. And they probably met for meals and encouragement, very much like our own community does on a regular basis. But they were also a community because they were doing this outside of the synagogue that would have been outcasts. Those in Israel would have said, why are you hiving off and worshiping this Jesus? And on top of that, they were likely doing it at a time of persecution because as we read the letter, we do understand that this was a community under the pressure of persecution, loss of their possessions, interrogation, violence, possibly martyrdom. And so it's a suffering community. And we learn a little bit about the author, too, that he has the mind of a theologian, but he has the heart of a pastor. He knows them. Hebrews is probably one of two books in the New Testament that really takes you into deep theological water. And yet, you find this word appearing throughout the letter, brothers, brothers, beloved, brothers. And right off the bat, that teaches us something, that the, the way the Bible does theology. You know, the Bible never does theology where we approach a book like this and we just simply debate doctrine or we philosophize about theory. Because the Bible doesn't do theology in a vacuum. It enters into our real-life circumstance. This is a community of men and women that are fearful, that are asking deep questions about whether their faith is for real, whether God is for real. They have sagging faith. They have worries. And so they have things in common with you and I, don't they? All of us could fall into one of those categories. And the message that he brings to them, the message that he, he calls them to, he summarizes in chapter 13 as a word of exhortation. That is a word that presses them, a word that prods them forward. And I think we can summarize that word of exhortation with the phrase, hold on to Christ. That's what he's saying to this community, hold on to Christ. And I think, at the very least, that means this. For those of you here that are looking into the Christian faith, that are not yet followers or followers of Christ, my hope is that as you walk through this study, if you're, if you're with us here, that you would see that Christ is worthy to hold on to, that he's the most worthy person you could ever hold on to. And even if you're someone that's been outside of the church and you're sort of making your way back. And for those of us that are followers of Christ, that we would know that there are forces at work to break your hold on Christ. There are forces every day at work to break your hold on him and so it's vitally important that we hold on to him there's this warning and it's described in different ways where he says drifting away falling from coming short neglecting hardening all of those things poses dangers for you and I and yet as he warns them the manner in which he prods them and exhorts them immediately catches my eye because what he does 
is he gives them a stunning picture of who it is that holds on to them. That's what he does. That's where he begins. Because I think as you and I feel this, you know, prodding and exhortation to not drift away and not step away, where we probably go is to say, I better grab onto God's law. I better grab onto my effort. I better grab onto any sort of nostalgia thing I have in my belief past. And instead what he does is he moves our eyes up and he shows us who's holding on to us. And the way he holds on to us is through his word. That's where this whole thing starts. You know, words, whether they're negative or positive, whether they're inspiring or deflating, whether they're encouraging or accusing, they hold on to us, don't they? Words get in your head. Words shape you. They guide you. They control you. They direct you. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that the decisions that you have made in your life are a product of the words that you believe. Do you know the words that you believe? I think we can look at any decision, good or bad, and we can see behind it some sort of narrative, something that we have laid hold of. Maybe it were false words that were told to us a long time ago. Maybe they're true words that your grandmother gave you, a coach gave you. And so you and I first need to reckon with the words that we have in our lives and the word that God brings here. And immediately, I know that raises questions and objections for all of us. You might be here and you say, well, you know, I don't even know if God exists and I'm, I doubt pretty much that he speaks at all. Or you might be here saying, I believe God exists, but he doesn't speak to me. I hear other people talk about that, but he doesn't speak to me. Or if he speaks, I don't think it's very clearly. Or if he speaks, I don't know if it's reliable. All of these questions come up when we think about the words of God. And so where I want us to start is where I think the writer of Hebrews is starting. In that he gives us the how, the who, and the what of God's words. Let's unpack those three things together. First of all, how God speaks. And we'll say three things here. Eagerly, faithfully, and personally. That's how God speaks. Now, one of the first challenges to uh, getting speech is just recognizing it, right? Now, those of you that have little nieces and nephews that have known them moving from the baby stage or, of course, parents, you know that stage where you're trying to recognize, is the kid actually talking? Are they speaking, right? And uh, this, this, can, this can add for lots of drama, right? Because those little kids are showing their emotion. I, I remember once uh, when our daughter Madeline, I think she was, you know, she was still in a crib, because I picture her in that crib, but I think she was walking around, and she began to scream and cry, and we went into her room, and we said, what is it, honey? And she was crying, monkey cherry, monkey cherry. And she was pointing, monkey cherry, just crying and screaming, looking at us like, you know, it was a matter of life and death. And then finally we realized what she was saying was rocking chair. She wanted out of the crib into the rocking chair and wanted us to hold her and read her a book. But it took a long time to recognize that. You know, if you can't recognize the language or speech, it's going to be tough. 
And God knows that we have a similar problem. And so he helps us recognize his speech. I like to say that God is bilingual. He speaks through the things he has made, and he speaks through the things he has done and said, especially about salvation. The first is what we might call the book of creation. Psalm 19, by the way, speaks of both of these. There's an old theological confession that says, the Belgic Confession, that says the creation is an elegant book it's an elegant book where all the creatures are like characters that lead us to see God. So, you know, whether you're sitting there watching a squirrel play in the park or whether you're watching the Animal Channel or whether you're watching one of your fellow human beings do a great feat, sink a basket, snow, you know, ski down a hill, whether it's someone being next to you and touching you and being present, these characters lead us to see God. The book of creation. John Calvin once said that the world is like a theater of God's glory. And because God doesn't want anybody to miss out on the happiness of knowing him, this is what he says. He not only sowed in men's minds that seed of religion, that means that instinct to go, I believe God exists, that seed of religion, but he revealed himself daily in the whole workmanship of the universe. As a consequence, man cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see God. But there's a lot of people that say they don't see God. And so in some way, we're able to stop our ears and close our eyes. You know, when we were little kids, we would just do it like this. Blah, 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 right? As adults, we get more clever. We find ways to close our eyes and stop our ears and so, and you see this actually with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, where it said that God not only made this world, but that he would walk with them and talk with them, and when they turn from God, when sin enters the picture, they cover their ears, they cover their eyes. And the effect of this is really staggering. It, it, to me, it is one of the saddest and really just mind-blowing things. The way that human beings, this is, this is the effect that sin has had. Now, if you and I stumbled upon a beautiful piece of artwork or a harmony, a symphony of sounds, or if we stumbled upon uh, technology or we stumbled upon some machinery, it would just be instinct to go, who made this? It's as natural. A kid knows it. Who's made this? But sin has done this work in you and I where we can walk through this world and go, no one made this. How vulnerable we are, how deceptive this thing called sin is. Yet God in his eagerness, he's so eager to reach beyond that. The book of Hebrews says that he spoke to us in many times in many ways. And this gets to that second speech, which is called special revelation. The things that God reveals about his salvation. And in the Old Testament, it came through dreams and visions. And sometimes God would show up in appearance. Those are called theophanies. And then he spoke by his word. The writer here mentions the prophets. But we're told here that the climax of the speech came as son speech. The speech of the son is the final climaxing word of all of God's speech. Now, you know... The person that comes to deliver the message to you delivers more than the message. You know, if, if someone shows up and they're maybe just sort of a hired courier, 
Now, that's one thing. If maybe the executive assistant shows up and talks to you, you go, whoa, what about this? If the head of state showed up and talked to you, you would go, wow, my attention, right? Well, what we find here is God sends the head of state. God sends the highest official, his very son, and he enters time and space, and he speaks to you and I. It's only the Christian faith that teaches that God shows up in person and he speaks to us. It climaxes in the sun, and it shows the eagerness of God. But then we've got to go back to these questions that we have, right? Like, well, I don't know if God even exists, and I doubt he speaks. And I would just say this. I, I would beg your patience on this. I would say, what, what parent, what parent? And some of us, you know, grew up in situations where we didn't have a parent that contacted us and communicated with us. But I think all of us could say, what good parent? What faithful parent would not make an effort to speak to their child? Can we give God as much credit as that? That the God of the universe would make an effort to communicate with us. Can we give him that? I think we owe that to him. But it may be that, you know, God speaks, but I don't hear him. The silent treatment. And there are periods in the Bible... There are times in the Bible, for instance, when Israel had rejected the words of God and God said there's going to be a famine of the word of God now. But it didn't go on forever. And the, what's a famine? It's supposed to make you hungry and thirsty for the word. It wasn't to starve them. It was to make them hungry and thirsty. It may be in your life there's been a little bit of a famine. It's to make you hungry and thirsty for the words of God. But I've also observed in my pastoral ministry, there can be times when we confuse God's capacity to speak, or rather, let me say it this way, we confuse our capacity to hear God speak with his commitment to speak to us. For instance, if you were in a place of loss and grief and trial, it's natural that you might not hear God speak. You know, you, you might go through a period where you go, the word of God just bounces off of me. I've talked to people that have gone through betrayals in our community, gone through losses, and they'll say, I just got to be honest with you, Glenn. I show up each week, and your sermon is like, you know, Charlie Brown's mom. You know, it means nothing to me. I can barely hear anything. Maybe the music gets me, and I can come up and eat this table, and it touches me, or someone talk to me. Don't confuse that with the fact that God doesn't speak, it's just natural. When you go through trials, and guess what? Those people that I'm referring to, a lot of them began to hear God speak over time. As he began to heal them. As they began to be comforted. What I'm saying is this, and I'll steal a quotation from a theologian that himself had gone through his own trials. The Bible knows nothing about a hidden God, but only of men and women who hide, and a God who comes to seek them out. That's Christianity right there. The Bible knows nothing about a hidden God, but only a God that seeks out men and women that hide. This is the Christian faith. So God speaks eagerly. He speaks faithfully. We're told here long ago he spoke to the fathers. Now, modern people, we suffer from what I'll call uh, I get it syndrome. Modern people will tend to look back at folks in the past and go, you know, they didn't really get it. They were just swept up in myths. They weren't as smart and savvy as I was. You know, I am, and we get it. Progress in technology, we got the view on the thing. They don't have the view on it. We know, we're in the know. We know now that all religions say the same thing. We know that biology will save us. These are the things that modern people think and say. Well, let me say a few things about this. Number one, it's sort of arrogant, right? Number two, do you realize in 100 years people are going to say that about us? 
right? But thirdly, thirdly, the Christian faith tells us that our hope for revelation, thankfully, is in us speaking and our wisdom. It's God speaking to us. It's a religion of revelation. Our hope is that God will speak a word to us, not that we have to get it and be so smart. God doesn't just reach out to the spiritual A students, okay? In the Christian gospel, he's faithful. He speaks through creation. He speaks through humanity. He spoke in the distant past. He spoke in the recent past through his son. He speaks through continuing witnesses. That's what the writer's saying here. He speaks in a way that accommodates us too. I will say he speaks cross-culturally, God. And this is a difference between Islam and Christianity. Although the Quran, you'll find translations of it, you know, Islam is quick to say that those translations aren't the word of God in the way that the untranslated word is. Because the divine message in their mind is bound up in a particular language. A lot of Christians feel the same way about the King James Version, by the way. But you see, the beauty of the Christian gospel is it doesn't belong to one people. You find... Hebrew, you find Aramaic, you find Greek. When Pentecost falls and the Spirit of God falls, they're speaking in all different languages of the world. Jesus says, I want you to go out and spread the gospel all over the world, which means it's going to be translated. The gospel is not the possession of one people. The language of God goes out into the world. It goes out into the globe. That's a big difference with the Christian faith. But also reliability here, because that's another question we have. Did God speak reliably to us? And I want you to see, this is not just a modern question again. The ancients had the same question. We're not so smart. In fact, the Bible speaks to it. The writer of Hebrews says that the message was reliable, declared first by the Lord, attested, this is sort of legal language, okay? Attested by those who heard, that's the apostles, and confirmed by signs and wonders. And you've heard me say before, the signs of wonders were never just like sort of dazzling sideshows. They were to confirm words that were spoken. That was the purpose of but how about these, you know, these objections that we feel in our own heart or we hear, didn't these guys just make this stuff up? I mean, wasn't it just them having a really good quiet time? Wasn't it them having a good spiritual moment? Didn't it change a bunch, the Bible? Didn't, they didn't quite have the same historical standards as you and I. And I just want to read to you one small passage of several that speaks to that question. This comes from the Apostle Peter who wrote part of the Bible, who was in Jesus' circle and was killed for him. This is what he said. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what he said there? We didn't make it up. It wasn't our interpretation. And what we carried to you was attested to. You know, sometimes we use this phrase, right, conversation killers. Things that just totally kill the conversation, right? Like when you, you know, say to someone, well, obviously you're stressed. You know, obviously you're tired. That's not what you want to hear from someone. Or when you're suffering and someone says, everything will just work out fine, conversation killer. Or labels or closed questions, right? Well, you know what a conversation killer with God is? When you presume already, when you presume already that his word isn't true, when his witnesses have said it is. 
basically you're not taking someone on their own terms. Who of you likes to be in a relationship with someone that says, listen, I know you think you're saying that. I know you think you're saying that, patronizing, 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 but I know better that you're really not saying that. But that's basically what people do with God and with the writers of the Bible. But lastly, personally, before we move to these other two points, he speaks personally. The Hebrew says, the writer from Hebrews, that he spoke to us. Us. If you read through the Bible, you will find virtually every human experience spoken to. The book of Ecclesiastes says it in a wonderful poetic way, right? You've heard this. Time to born, time to die, time to plant, time to sow, time to embrace, time to not embrace, time to dance, mourn, all these different things. It's just another way of saying that God speaks in every situation, but more so, remember, he speaks by his Son. The Son of God enters our circumstance for 33 years, and he walks in it. And he was not living a cush, a cush life. He was walking among the poor and the oppressed in the worst of human experience, and then he suffers the worst of human experience, and he's a high priest that can sympathize. That's one of the messages we'll get. So personally means that he can speak into your circumstance is what I'm saying. We struggle there, but he can. But more so, he has his own voice. And this is something we need to be very careful about. You know, modern people have come to say that God's voice is generic. Basically, take all the religions of the world, we'll pull out three or four things, and it's a generic voice. There's nothing personal about it. But even more so, there's certain theology, like Eat, Pray, and Love. Some of you have read that book where you remember her revelation in that book is, I was seeking God's voice, and guess what? I found out it was my voice. God's voice got hijacked. And we can hijack God's voice, too, when we want him to say certain things the way we say it. We want, you know, we basically will only believe as far as we agree with what he says. And so... This is what chapter 12 says, refusing to believe. And I'll say one of the best indicators of this are your friendships and relationships. Do you have friends with people that disagree with you and that confront you? Because it shows our capacity to hear God and let him have his own voice in our life. We need to hear his voice. But who is that voice? Well, I've already said he speaks through the Son. And this speaks to the greatness and finality of God. These first verses of Hebrew uh, are some of the most elevated teaching we have in the Bible about the person of Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of God, the second person of the Christian Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have existed eternally. Some of the highest elevated insight we have on this. Have you ever really spoken to a very important person? I'm guessing, you know, there's someone in your life you would regard as very important, and I'm also guessing that you remember what they said to you. Why? Because the more we hold someone up, the more we hold on to their words. The more you revere someone and hold them up, you will hold on to their words. It's just common human experience. And the same thing the writer of Hebrews is doing for you and I. As Christ is elevated in the place he should be, his words begin to have more root and authority. And so he sets this stage of the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and he's getting into this idea of that what's called the deity of Jesus, right? The God of Jesus, the, the divine nature of who Jesus is. And then he begins to unpack these clauses. 
Look at what he says here. First of all, he talks about the being of Jesus, saying that he's the imprint and the exact representation. For years, God had been sending advanced sketches of who he was, maybe through a leader like Moses or a leader like David or a good prophet or a priest and a king. But now the living portrait has shown up. That's what he's saying. The living portrait of God. In fact, the Greek word for imprint has a meaning of character. The very character of God has appeared. And this is why Jesus said, if you have seen the Father, you have seen me. You have to realize how radical that was for him to say that. If you have seen the infinite, immortal God of the universe, or rather, if you've seen me, you have seen him. That's what he was saying. And one of the earliest Christian creeds puts it this way about Christ. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And immediately... This idea of Jesus only being right, a teacher and a moral guide, gets challenged. But the reason I think you and I need to know this is by how powerful the word of Christ is. How powerful the word of Christ is in our lives. I have seen it, I have seen it, personally uphold people through job loss, through broken hearts, through ended marriages, through illness, I have seen it on their deathbed. I have seen it pull people out of a place of temptation. I have seen it release people from vices in their life. I have seen it transform the physical appearance of people. That's how powerful the word of Christ is in the lives of people. Do you believe it could be that powerful for you? Because of the being of the one who spoke it. But second of all, the glory where he says Jesus Christ is the radiance, the outshining of God. The outshining of God in heaven. And it means that God is not just big and he's not just eternal, he's beautiful. He's glorious. That's how you've understood who's speaking to you when he's beautiful. And in Jesus' ministry, maybe we saw the glory of Jesus' compassion or the glory of his justice as he would swear to his own hurt or maybe his love but what I'm saying to you is we have not heard the word of God speak if he isn't beautiful to us. If he doesn't rise up and captivate us because you know as far as what you're doing in your life, whatever captivates your hearts is what you will do. Whatever captivates your desires in your heart is what will win the day in your life. Do you know what captivates you? What do you daydream about? When you're having a bad day, where do you run? It may be something as small as I'm going to get to go for a run today. It might, I'm going to go get to eat a bunch of ice cream. I'm going to hook up with somebody tonight. Where do you go? Does he captivate you and does his word captivate you? That's the second thing. But lastly, this status. And this is really, I'll tell you, above and beyond us. I, I wish I had a whole sermon to talk about this thing. We can only talk about it for two minutes because I get to the, get to the last point. But here he's also talking about status here. The gospel says that after Jesus Christ suffered and died, that he resurrected from the dead. He didn't just resurrect. He ascended into heaven and that he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the place of authority. He took up his rightful place in the court of God. This is what the gospel teaches. And we have this language here for the writer says that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
And then later, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We heard that Old Testament quote. You know, for years I've really read those things and said, what is that saying there? Is it saying that Jesus wasn't the son of God before, but now he is? Is it saying somehow that Jesus had a set? You know, of course Jesus was always the son of God. Of course Jesus was always deity, but what it's saying is when Jesus ascended into heaven and took his rightful throne, that he entered into a full and final stage of his sonship. That he now would enjoy a dimension of his sonship with God that he had not yet enjoyed yet. This is what it means that his name would be, he inherited a name better than the angels because of his faithful work, because he faithfully did what God had called to do. And we know the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just saying something about us. The resurrection will often say is like the receipt of God's payment. It, it, it's assurance to God's people that the payment for sin really worked, that it really was accepted by God. But it wasn't just for us. That it did something for him as well. And here we're talking about the difference between humiliation and exaltation because the writer of Hebrews is not just talking about the divine and human nature of Jesus, the God-man. He's talking about the two states of the Son of God. The one is what's called the state of humiliation where you have the infinite God becoming finite, right? Where you have the all-powerful God becoming powerless, becoming weak not only to the things that you and I suffer with, but evil people that come after him. You have the one that could feed 5,000 people hunger and thirst in his own body. You have the one that made the law and is above the law, comes under the law, and he lives under the law just like you and I. That's why Jesus had to live a righteous life. You have the one that is sinless and guiltless come under the judgment of the law because for us. You have the one that's pure and absolutely holy, becoming shame for us, becoming sin for you and I. This is the state of humiliation. If we understand that against the backdrop of this idea that he's the radiance of God, he's the, he's the exact representation of God, he's the outshining of God, when you take that picture with all these things that the Son of God did, how low he went, how he walked among the lowly, how he was crucified before the world, as he was shamed before the world, as he was torn in two before the world, you can only think about the Spirit that says sometimes it makes me tremble it makes me tremble that's what he's saying to us but it doesn't stop there because death couldn't hold a claim on him that's what the gospel says and he had to rise up and he came to a state of exaltation and if we had a time to go to the book of Romans we would read the apostle Paul says at that point he was declared to be the Son of God in power. And what does it say? That God bound Himself in an oath to His Son. He preordained that when He rose to that place, He would declare to the universe, this is My Son whom I am well pleased. That He is the Son of God that has reached this status and now He's enjoying that glory. He's enjoying the rank that He deserves. The nations will be His inheritance. Why do I go on about this, friends? Because you and I need to know who's speaking to us. You and I need to know the voice that we're hearing. The greatness of the word. The authority of the word in your life. The greater the person, the more you'll hear their words. Plain and simple. But also, you and I need to know about the finality of the word. You know, there are some times when you and I are suffering and we're struggling and we're lonely 
deep down we think, I wish God would send an angel into my life and speak a word to me. And I just want to tell you, if God sent an angel into your life and speak a word to you, it would not be a better word than what you have through Christ. Because what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is the message delivered by angels, as great as it was, in the book of Hebrews, 13 different times we hear the word better. He's trying to say it's better because of Christ. Better priest, better word. And so these are the things that God has given you and I to hold on to. And just as Jesus' redemption was accomplished and applied, he finished the work of God and it got applied to everybody that believes, the word of God has been accomplished and applied. The word is done. We don't need new prophecies and new visions. We need new application of the word. And so you and I, you know, instead of going, gee, I wish I would get a new prophecy, I would give a vision, it's the word of Christ. But I need to end with this. What it speaks, and what it speaks of is a great salvation. That's what he tells us. Chapter 2. Don't ignore a great salvation. Why is it a great salvation? Three things. One, because it's a true salvation. The gospel and the message of salvation we'll get from the religions of the world and the secular culture. It's not God's salvation, it's self-salvation. That's the message you get from the world. And it's a message that basically says, you're drowning in the water, throw yourself a life preserver. Not very helpful. And it forces you and I to lie about God's character, to lie about ourselves. Because basically, to save ourselves, we have to lower God's righteousness and justice, or we've got to say we're doing a lot better than we are. And it's God's salvation that he can be who he is in all his righteousness and all his glory. And you and I can come, as Micah said today, honestly before him. However we are, whatever baggage we got today, we can come before him in his presence because he satisfies the demands of his law by his son. He doesn't have to overlook sin. It says he made purification for sins. You know, when you and I stand on good legal ground, when we feel like uh, that we're right within the law, when you and I feel like we're on the just side of the law, we feel secure. And what I'm saying to you is for those that are believers, that's how you ought to feel. That's why in the book of John it says, 1 John, if you confess your sins, he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? It's because he's faithful and just. Now, this is, this is staggering because of what Jesus did. Forgiveness is now a matter of justice. It would be unjust for God to forgive someone that believes in him and has trusted Christ. Isn't that amazing? You and I need to be a little bit bolder with grabbing forgiveness instead of going, gee, I hope God forgives me. Gee, did he forgive me? It's a matter of justice to God. Does the Son of God die and rise from the grave? And you're forgiven. Base your forgiveness on that, not about how you feel. So it's a true salvation. It's a sacrificial salvation. The Son of God. The Son of God is the one that comes. The great high priest. This is the thing. You know, the Old Testament priests could make offerings. They had to make offerings for their own sin. And for, but they, they never really did the job. But the high priest offers himself as a sin offering. He makes purification. But lastly, it's a, commu- a completed salvation. When you got self-salvation, your soul never rests. The question of your acceptance is always up in the air. And I want you to notice it says he made, past tense, purification. He completed what he came to do. 
And so you and I begin to have this little dialogue, and maybe it looks a little different because we have these questions. We, got, we go, God, I, I know that you've forgiven me, but do you see me as righteousness? And God speaks back to us and says, He who you know, was not sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And you might say, well, God, I know I'm legally in the right standing with you, but do you, lo- do you love me? And God answers back and says, because of the great love with which I loved you, even when you were dead in trespasses, I made you alive together with Christ. And you might say, well, God, do you, I know you love me, but do you accept me? I mean, really, want me as a son or daughter? And at that point, God would say, how great is the love of the Father that he calls his children of God? And you might say, okay, well, I'm glad that I'm accepted by you as a son or daughter, but do I got a future with you? And he will say that you are co-heirs with Christ. You've been given an inheritance with the Son of God. It's a completed salvation. You and I aren't waiting for anything. It's been given. It's been done. A high priest is raised. In no other religion do you have a God that gives you so selflessly to reconcile you to himself. It's not just unconditional love, it's contraditional love. He loves you against sense and he loves you against your own moral performance. So I want to ask you, what word are you hearing? What word is shaping your life? What word is directing you? How have you heard God speak? Who is speaking behind that word? Is it a great salvation? If it is, we won't neglect it, will we? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, bring your word to settle in our hearts, that it might help us to live unto you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We have just heard and be reminded of what Christianity is really all about. Christianity is not about how well we can hold on to Christ, but it's about Christ holding on to us. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, 38,